Sappho's Ode to Aphrodite is both a rare and incredible work. But what are some of the themes? What's the premise of the poem? And what would it sound like performed in ancient Greek? Well, join me and find out all about it on a special mini episode of the Ancient History Hound podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Ancient History Hound podcast. My name's Neil, and I've been doing this podcast for coming up to five years, and so I thought I'd try something new, an occasional shorter episode, which allows me to focus on something which might not be as well suited for a longer format episode. So the first short episode is on Sappho's Ode to Aphrodite. This was something which I used in my MA dissertation many, many, many years ago. Just so you know, there will be episode notes with a transcription on my new and improved website, ancientblogger.com. What you can expect is a brief overview of Sappho, some of the elements of the poem, and even a performance of it in ancient Greek. Not by me, I hasten to add, but by the fantastic people at Seikilo. They are all about ancient Greek music. Links to their YouTube channel, where they showcase music played on ancient Greek instruments, will feature in the episode notes on the new and improved ancientblogger.com website. Here we go then, to start with, who was Sappho? Sappho will at some point get her own episode, because she's one of the great figures from antiquity. She was born in the late 7th century BCE to a well-set family on the island of Lesbos. She wrote large amounts of poetry, sadly little of it survives. In fact, one estimate is that we only have 1% of all of her work. But back in antiquity, she was recognised as a great artist and a great person. An important point about poetry in ancient Greece is often missed, that it was performed. Where we think of poetry nowadays as experienced primarily in a book, the works of Sappho would have been sung with accompanying music. It was a performance, and it was a work of art which existed on many different levels. Lesbos is an island which hugs the coast of modern-day Turkey, so Sappho wasn't from mainland Greece, and this was reflected in her work through her accent. The three dialects of ancient Greek at the time were Ionic, Doric, and Aeolic. And it was Aeolic which Sappho spoke, and this gave her work a strong accent, differing from the other two. In fact, it was an element which would make her poetry difficult to understand for both Greeks and later cultures. And then there's the other thing Sappho was closely associated with, a woman's love for another woman. Lesbos and Sappho gave rise to the modern words lesbian and sapphic. And yet, what we know about Sappho is minuscule, Perhaps, well, more than that, hopefully, more fragments will come to light, or perhaps even an entire poem, because trust me, she's absolutely fascinating. Next up then, the poem, and I'm going to read it out, but don't forget that performance of it at the end of the episode. I'm using the translation by Barbara Hughes Fowler in the book Archaic Greek Poetry, which is a great source book. Now, there is a point in the second half of the poem where Aphrodite addresses Sappho directly. Ideally, I'd have a second voice, but just listen out for it. OK, then, here we go. Deathless Aphrodite of dazzling throne, beguiling enchantress, child of Zeus, do not, I beseech you, overwhelm my soul with torment and anguish, O queen. But come here to me, 
If ever before you heard from afar my voice and listened to me, and, abandoning your father's golden home, you came to me. Your chariot yoked and your sparrows pretty and swift, with frequent pulsing of fluttering wings, bore you athwart the black earth, sheer from above, through heaven's mist. And quickly they came, and you, O blessed one, with a smile upon your immortal face, asked whatever I suffered now, and why again I'd called on you and whatever I most in my maddened heart wanted to happen to me, whom am I now to persuade to lead back to her love? Who, O Sappho, does you wrong? For if she flees, she'll soon pursue, and if she refuses gifts, she'll soon bestow them, and if she does not love, soon she will, in her despite. Come to me even now and release me from torturing cares, and all that my heart desires, accomplish for me, and do you yourself do battle with me. Well, I hope I did that some level of justice. The general premise of the poem is that Sappho is infatuated with someone and requests help from Aphrodite. Sappho makes mention of where the goddess has helped her in a similar situation in the past, and the poem finishes with her asking for Aphrodite to work with her in all that her heart desires, and this might mean more than freeing her of her current infatuation. That Aphrodite names Sappho is a rare thing, and builds upon the connection between the two, and how this framed is vital as I'll mention. But I'll start with the humorous elements of it all, which has been noted by many scholars, and perhaps is a bit of a surprise given the subject. Sappho reminisces about her previous experiences of working with a goddess to achieve her heart's desire, and the goddess asks her who it is that she needs help with, a perfectly reasonable query. But it comes across in a manner of Aphrodite almost rolling her immortal eyes, Kind of, yeah, okay, Sappho, who is it this time? And there's also humour to be found at the outset. For example, how does Aphrodite arrive? Well, not by appearing or flying, but in a chariot. Okay, you might say, that's impressive, but less so when it's drawn by sparrows. Again, there's the opinion that the juxtaposition of sparrows pulling a chariot is in itself a bit of a joke. It feels a bit Monty Python. Not only are sparrows hardly a grand animal, but in terms of how it would function, well, they aren't exactly animals which would pull in the same direction. And how are they attached exactly? Okay, I'll, I'll stop going down that rabbit hole. Now, sparrows weren't randomly chosen. They were actually a bird associated with the goddess, just perhaps not necessarily the ones you'd want pulling you along. In fact, we can take the chariot as the literal comedy vehicle to consider a joke outside of the poem. The instance of Aphrodite getting on her chariot and speeding to Sappho has been argued as a parody of a journey Hera made in the Iliad. In Book 5, she travelled from Olympus to the plains of Troy in a chariot drawn by horses, and Homer paints a dynamic scene of Hera cracking the whip and the horses neighing as they sped to the earth. It's perhaps a bit more of what you might expect. If this is a reference, it's ingenious because it extends further. Linking Aphrodite to the Iliad provides a bit of a cruel joke at the goddess's expense. Aphrodite doesn't fare well at the Iliad where warfare is involved, and if you're thinking, hang on, no one's saying that, well, the chariot was part of the battlefield iconography of Homer. So then, let's sum up. We have Aphrodite, a goddess with a proven poor track record in warfare, choosing to ride in a chariot. That sparrows are involved gives a sort of comical visual image, and then there's the idea that it's made more ridiculous by having an example of Hera travelling in a chariot to contrast it with. 
Moving on from humour, how Aphrodite is referred to is also crucial to the poem. In the opening stanza, she's called the daughter of Zeus. In mythology, Aphrodite had two original birth myths. One is perhaps more famous than the other, and both offer comment about her. In one myth, Aphrodite emerges from the foam caused when the castrated genitals of Uranus fell into the sea. In the other, she's just the daughter of Zeus and Dione. But Sappho uses the latter, perhaps the more civilised and gentler form of Aphrodite, because she had something of a fearsome side. Greek gods could have particular aspects or elements appealed to invoke them. You may have noticed that often an epithet follows the name of a god. It was always crucial to get this right. This moves to a further comment on the poem, that it was formed of three sections. The initial appeal to Aphrodite, the reminder of past experiences together which supported the request, and the demand which is made at the end. Here we have a poem acting in a more formalised appeal structure, and in a way which has been seen in the later tradition of love spells. Love spells became almost an established practice throughout classical Greece and in the later periods. Potions and amulets might help, but also an incantation or type of prayer, and Aphrodite was exactly who you might turn to. In the Iliad, Aphrodite helps Hera seduce Zeus, and later, in the 5th century BCE, we have Pindar given an account of Aphrodite helping mortals. Here, it's Jason of Argonauts fame looking to win the affections of Medea. He does so, and Pindar wrote how this was achieved using incantations he was taught by Aphrodite. But love wasn't an easy thing, and you could probably say the same thing now. In fact, Sappho in another poem described it in a manner similar to an illness or disease as a fire running under the skin. For the ancient Greeks, love wasn't something taken lightly, and in this poem, Sappho mentioned her maddened heart and tortuous cares. This motif of suffering is something present in love spells, and also how Aphrodite facilitated an outcome. Take a charm she used, which consisted of a bird tied to a wheel. Yeah, it doesn't sound pleasant, and it's been posited that this carried the notion of both being caught and being in a frenzied state. Emotional and physical distress form the palette of many love spells, either in the creation or dispelling of this intense desire. A particular type of spell relevant here was the agoyi, I hope I pronounced that correctly. This sought to drive the person into your arms. A spell similar to this was the binding spell, which was used for different, more pernicious reasons, but they were similar in that they tried to bind an individual to an outcome or fate or emotional state. There isn't a sense that the other person has a say in the matter, but then, as I said, affairs of the heart could wander into some very nasty or uncomfortable territory in ancient Greece. Little wonder that the poem ends with Sappho asking Aphrodite to do battle with her, and perhaps this is a military analogy that isn't part of that earlier joke. And speaking of the end, here we are, but what a way to sign off. What you're about to hear is a rendition of the poem in ancient Greek by Evangelia Thalassini, courtesy of Seikilo. They have a fantastic YouTube channel, as I mentioned earlier, so double check it out. And again, that Star Wars theme is something else. But don't worry if you didn't write that down. I'll put the clip and links to it all, as well as a transcription in the episode notes on ancientblogger.com. And let me know what you thought about this episode, what you thought about the format and the content. I'd be really, really keen to hear any feedback you have and keep those reviews coming on. Anyway, until next time, keep safe and well. 
and take it away, Evangelia. Yeah.